Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Back on February 8th, I spoke with Sun Yun, Director of the China Program at the Stimson Center, for our interview, Eyes on Ukraine, Strategic Implications for China, Russia, and the United States. Since then, much has changed. On February 24th, to the shock of many, Russia invaded Ukraine, the largest conventional military attack on a sovereign state in Europe since World War II. In the last two weeks, more than 1.5 million refugees have fled Ukraine, and there are reports of more than 1,000 civilian casualties. China's position regarding Russia's actions have come under scrutiny. Beijing has continued to emphasize the principles of territorial integrity and sovereignty, while also blaming the West for creating the conditions, specifically the Eastern expansion of NATO, that led to Russia's actions. Sun Yun has again graciously agreed to join us to discuss the rhetoric, actions, and involving relationships between Russia, China, and the United States since the Russian invasion. Yun, we know the past few weeks have been particularly busy for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to help us better understand what has transpired and what could potentially happen down the road. We once again have a lot to cover, so let's jump right in with the first question. Ultimately, it may be impossible to say for certain, but what do you think China knew in advance about Russia's plans? And how did the language and nature of their February 4th joint statement declaring a no limits partnership impact Russia's thinking? Well, thank you, Jess. Thank you for having me again. And thank you for that very insightful and, and interesting question, because that's what everyone has been asking. Did China know? I think the first question is, uh, what well, did China know what? Did China know about the Russian plan to invade? Well, if China knew that we're assuming that Putin would share that plan with China in advance, which I think in this case is quite unlikely. Another piece of evidence that we do have is that the Chinese embassy in Ukraine as of the week before the invasion were still telling Chinese nationals in Ukraine that a war is not gonna happen. So there was no evacuation plan. There was no evacuation to begin, to begin with. And there was also no evacuation plan. So then we have to assume that if Xi Jinping was indeed told by Putin, by Putin about his invasion plan, then Xi Jinping deliberately withheld that information so that the Chinese government were not mobilized to prepare for evacuation. I think that's also highly unlikely. One likely scenario is that by the beginning of February, which is February 4th, when the joint statement was released, um, I think China knew that Putin was having some plans because you don't mobilize that much troop along the border without a plan as for what you're gonna do about it. But it was quite unspecific as for what exactly Putin had in, on his mind. And one argument is that by February 4th, Putin was not even sure whether he was going to invade or not. And I think that's a very likely scenario. So coming back to what China knew, in the joint statement, the Chinese expressed two things, the support of two things. The first one is that Russia has legitimate security concerns, and that's about the expansion of NATO. The second one is that China also supports the Russia proposed plan for comprehensive Europe's, European security. So that probably indicates certain proposals on the Russian Russian side 
that the Chinese were in agreement with. But there was no indication in the joint statement that China was aware that Putin was going to invade Ukraine in a full-scale invasion, and China would be supportive of that. In fact, I think the Chinese statement about the sovereignty and the emphasis on territorial integrity is in fact an indicator that the Chinese are not in full agreement with Russia about, his, about Putin's full invasion in, uh, in Ukraine. Last but not least, people talk about the joint statement as a document that suggests that China and Russia has an alliance. Well, one defining feature of a military alliance or security alliance is mutual defense. It means when one country is under attack, the other one will come to its, come to its, um, its, its defense, will come to its support. And in this case, I don't think we expect either Russia or China to provide that mutual defense in a, in a military contingency. And specifically in the Russian-Ukraine crisis, we're not seeing China providing any sorts of military support to Russia. People call this an alliance and call the joint statement an alliance agreement. So my, my question is that, well, if Beijing and Moscow are indeed going to have an alliance, why don't they just have an alliance agreement? Why would they call it a joint statement? So I think the ambiguity and the ambivalence left in that joint statement, regardless of the, well, how, you, how you interpret the term such as no limits, I think that's an indicator that, well, this is not an alliance, this is an alignment where both China and Russia are exploiting each other's strategic utility, but also with reservations. Thank you. Let's turn to the current state of China's thinking. How do you think Beijing is currently viewing the bet it made by leaning into Russia? Do you think it regrets the February 4th statement or is it just kind of biding its time, seeing what happens and adjusting accordingly as need be? I think when China looks at European, uh, the Ukraine crisis and what's going on in, in Europe, the most direct impression in China is that, well, this is in Europe, it's not in Asia. So there is a sense that, well, this is not in our neighborhood and it's not in China's periphery. So it's, it does not pose the most immediate security challenge or threat to China's homeland security. And I think that's the first impression um, or the first reaction the Chinese have. The second reaction is when they look at the global power equilibrium and look at especially the great power competition between US and China, I think there is a strong sense in China that while this Ukraine crisis may not be a baggage for China, in fact, it might have done China some good because it does offer a major strategic distraction of, for the United States. As well, we know that US just announced its Indo-Pacific strategy very recently for the Biden administration. So the sense is that while US strategic priority will remain in the Indo-Pacific region and it will be focused on China. So for the Chinese, the Ukraine crisis does not come as a total disaster because it, at the minimum, it will attract the United States, what distracts the United States from its focus on the Indo-Pacific. So in that sense, I think the Chinese do look at Russia, maybe not this, this is not Russia's smartest move, but in the end, the Chinese do have certain strategic benefits to harvest from this, uh, from this current situation. I want to turn to the phone call that um, President Xi's and Putin had on February 25th. Um, during that call, she, to, she told Putin that he hoped to see peace talks as early as possible, 
Um, how do you view China positioning itself as a potential third party mediator? Is China truly interested in playing a proactive role or is this more about rhetoric and calling for all sides to show restraint and negotiate? And thirdly, does China even have the credibility to mediate? Typically a mediator seems to be a neutral power, a neutral player. Given its close relationship with Russia, China doesn't seem to fit that qualification. Well, those are great observations. I think for China to play a mediation mediation role, there are certain qualities that China will have to will have to 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 obtain before it can do that. And if we look at China's experience as a mediator in other conflicts, such as, for example, in Afghanistan or in Burma or in uh, in the Middle East, I would say the role that China has played is mostly focused on facilitation rather than mediation. Because being a mediator actually means that you have a stake in how, how the result or how the compromise will look like. It will inevitably require China to take certain positions in what the eventual compromise with the eventual deal will look like. It means that China will have to take positions as for what Russia will have to concede or compromise. And at the same time, also what Ukraine will have to uh, will have to compromise. So those are positions that I would say China has deliberately avoided in this previous experience with conflict mediation. And we see this almost in all the all the conflict cases that China will provide, for example, will, pro will provide the logistical support. Think about the six party talks in Beijing about North Korea. China played the role as the convener and the facilitator of the dialogue, but China did not play a substantive role in what the, the agreement will eventually need to look like. So I think that's, when we talk about China as a, as a third party mediator, I always have the question in terms of the distinction between facilitator and the mediator. Mediator actually carries a significant role in terms of the substance of the negotiation. And that's something that China has deliberately avoided in, in the past experience. So I've seen for the current Ukraine crisis, China is taking a politically safe position because people would assume that China has influence over, over Russia. And when the proposal is made, for example, by European countries that, well, China, you, sh you should play a mediation role, for China to say no to that proposal is diplomatically unwise. How could China say no? It's something that morally correct and also politically important. So for China to shed that responsibility or to shut the door on that responsibility is going to be diplomatically costly because people will say, well, China is a, is, is a free rider of the international system. And when it is called upon to, uh, to mediate in a major conflict, China says no. So I think saying no is not an option for China. So China is basically saying that, okay, well, we would like to play that role when the condition is, is, is ripe and when it's needed. And if you look at what for, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi said yesterday at the uh, two sessions press conference, he was asked about mediation and he did say that well, China could mediate in the future when, when it is needed. And that's a very interesting statement, when it is needed by whom? And that again gets into the Chinese uh, principle almost uh, in terms of the um, involvement in other countries' internal affairs, which is the whole country consent which means that if there is to be a mediation, what China is saying that, what China is saying is that, well, it has to be needed by both Ukraine and Russia. 
So if there is such an invitation from both Ukraine and Russia for China to mediate, China probably will play that role. But again, how China will refrain from the substance of the compromise needed, I think that will be a very interesting test for China's mediation skills. That's a really important distinction. Thank you um, for elaborating on that. I wanna turn a bit to the economic dimension of all of this. How have economic sanctions that are currently devastating the Russian economy affected the Sino-Russian relationship? What has been the reaction from Beijing and might China use this moment to accelerate the adoption of its homegrown cross-border interbank payment system beyond its borders? Well, that is a great question, and that's, I think, the question all the Chinese analysts are, uh, are asking, because uh, they also want to understand that so far it seems that this Ukraine crisis has not really affected China's national interest. But once the sanction on, on, on Russia really extends to China as Russia's main trading partner, then China is going to feel the, feel the pain. But I have to say, so far, we haven't seen most, uh, most of the um, I would say the most severe sanctions that were discussed that would be imposed on China. Like for example, uh, there have been discussions about the China's Union Pay, which is a uh, transaction system that is, uh, that is basically used in Chinese nationals uh, foreign transaction. Like for example, if a Chinese comes to the United States, the Union Pay will allow that person to use his Chinese bank card here in the United States. So if Union Pay maintains its transaction with Russia, does that mean that Union Pay will be put under US sanctions? Does that mean that Union Pay will be shut out of the international payment system? So that's an unknown. And using the same criteria, if the Chinese policy banks, Exim Bank or China Development Bank provides financing to a domestic infrastructure development project in Russia, because Russia asks China for financial assistance, does that mean that these two major policy banks will be also put under US and Western sanctions? And last but not least, we know that 70% of Russia's export to China is in fact energy resources. And energy resources in China is, is, is processed by the largest three oil companies, CM, uh, CMPC, Sanopec, and Sinuk. So will they be put under the sanction for their transaction with, uh, with, with Russian energy companies? So all these are questions that have not yet been answered. So I think the Chinese are also watching closely as well what sanctions there will be and the, whether the secondary sanctions, also the foreign, uh, foreign product list will be imposed on China as well. I wanna to turn to a little bit more about internal uh, Chinese domestic situation, how information is being um, received, processed in China and what China's messaging has been like thus far. Um, how should we understand China's censorship of discussion about the situation? Um, following Russia's lead in framing what we've been calling the invasion as a special military operation, not an invasion, not a war. And China also recently cut off comments of the head of the International Paralympic Committee when he said that all countries sh should stand for peace. Was that surprising to you or is this part of the typical game plan? Uh, it is surprising in the sense that China went out to, um, to basically cleanse the whole internet space and social media of what they call the anti-war rhetoric. But on the other hand, if you think about the Chinese context, it's not completely surprising because one, this year China is going to have the 20th Party's Congress. 
So whenever China has a party congress that year is going to be particularly focused on internal stability. So I think there is a concern in China, this anti-war rhetoric could develop into something bigger, like a anti-war movement. And from a virtual movement to a physical movement, that what if there's demonstrations in, uh, in China, in Beijing, in front of the Russian embassy against the, against the war. So I think that's the domestic social stability is something on the top of the priority list for, for Beijing. And there's also a secondary consideration, which is again, going back to the February 4th joint statement where China basically has already committed its strong support to Russia. So the problem is these two events are happening, have happened too close to each other. So we saw the joint statement on February 4th and then on February 21st, Russia was recognizing the independence of the two, uh, of the two breakaway territories and sending peacekeepers into Ukraine. And then on February 24th, Russia was basically launching a full-scale invasion into Ukraine. So within three weeks, it requires Beijing to justify these two events basically within one, one month. And I think any country, especially for foreign ministry of China, faces a tremendous difficulty in doing so. That how do you justify that? Well, this Russia behavior, and on top of that, three weeks ago, China just expressed its strongest support for Russia. So in order to straighten this, uh, I call it the impossible, impossible square, I think the Chinese are trying very hard to control the domestic information flow so that they can create a narrative to be bought by the Chinese general public that this war is not as unjustified as the West has portrayed. And therefore, China's February 4th joint statement with Russia was not that unwise. Let's look at some longer term takeaways. Um, what long term lessons might China take away from Russia's war in Ukraine, particularly about the Western response? Um, does this have implications for future Chinese policy decisions, including but not limited to Taiwan? And then finally, throwing a lot at you right now, sorry, what is Taiwan learning from China's response? Um, those are terrific questions. I think there are two levels. The first one is on a global level. How is this war going to change the international power equilibrium? We honestly do not have an answer for that just yet because the war is not over. And I think the whole world is appalled uh, by the Russian behavior. Um, but we also know that by the end of this war, Russia's international transaction or its international trade and this international status is going to take an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable hit. So Russia as a great power, maybe it can still remain as a nuclear power, but I think as a, as a, by the end of this Ukraine war, Russia's comprehensive national power is going to be is going to be significantly um, mitigated because of it. And Russia's soft power, Russia's international legitimacy, its reputation, basically all aspect of Russia's comprehensive national power is going to be uh, is going to be affected. So how does that change the equilibrium, right? Um, does that mean that China and Russia will come closer at the end of this war? Uh, it looks so, it looks like so, and they, it looks like that if China is going to uh, get away with this passive support of Russia without much of the sanction pushback, and Russia is also okay with this growing dependence on China, then China and Russia will grow, grow closer 
by the end of this war. And that will have tremendous implications for China's relationship with not only the United States, but also with Europe. Just think about how China's reputation will be, will be questioned um, by siding with Russia in this, uh, in, in this war. So I think that's on the international level when we talk about the power equilibrium. But then on a very specific practical issue, that is Taiwan. That although people say that oh, there's no comparison, there's no, um, and the Chinese would also say there's no comparison because Ukraine is a sovereign nation and Taiwan does not have sovereignty and Taiwan does not have a territorial integrity. So um, we, I guess we could say that, well, there's no comparison, but there's there are implications, which is that China watches how the war in U Ukraine um, happens and evolves and how the United States and the West react to it. I think the Chinese are speculating and also contemplating that maybe this is how things will evolve if there is a Taiwan contingency when China decides to use force against Taiwan either to deter independence or to achieve unification. So in this sense, I think the Ukraine case is used, is viewed almost as a, as a, as a as a scenario game or as a uh, as a reference point for China's future use of force against Taiwan. And there are a couple of takeaways. I think the first one is, uh, well, if you look at the Chinese media, the primary message is that, well, last year it was, it was Afghanistan that US abandoned. And this year it is Ukraine that the US refused to intervene militarily to rescue. And next year it will be Taiwan. I think that's part of the psychological warfare with the informational warfare that China is trying to strike to use the opportunity to spread, to sow the seed of fear and sow the seeds of question and skepticism in Taiwan about the US credibility. That's the first one. But if you look at how the Chinese analyze the development in Ukraine, uh, especially on the battlefield, then the first thing is they are also surprised that Russia did not achieve a rapid and decisive victory on the battlefield either. So that means, I think translating into the, the takeaway for China, that means that, well, maybe the local resistance from Taiwanese is not going to be as weak as China imagined, or China has speculated. If the war drags on, and let's say China invades Taiwan and could not achieve that decisive victory within five days or a week, then the, then the international outcry is going to grow so strongly that China will have to bear the unsinkable cost diplomatically and politically. And it also raises the question that whether the rest of the world will come to Taiwan's rescue by that point. So I think the, the lessons and takeaways from the Ukraine crisis for the a future potential Taiwan contingency is multifold, is comprehensive, and it's going to be very rich. And we're still watching the development to evolve. Just adding on a little bit to that, um, should we be concerned about China's threats that the US had better not try to create a NATO analog in the Asia Pacific. I think of AUKUS, I think of other things, other um, you know, alliances that are already in place. And it seems like recent events in Ukraine are further strengthening our relationships with Japan, South Korea. Um, Japan has called for you know, increasing defense in ways that it, it never has before. Um, do you think China, was expecting that type of reaction? And do you think this will sway the United States or any of its allies from you know, changing course regarding AUKUS or any other plans in the future to deter China? 
Well, that's a great question because uh, I think that's a question a lot of people ask here too. So after the Ukraine crisis, do we, do we foresee that we will be treating both China and Russia at this, well, as our strategic opponent or strategic adversaries at the same time? Or do we need to prioritize one over the other? And if we do need to prioritize, what does that mean uh, by our current action that we are basically pushing Russia and China together? So there are disagreements I think, and debates about, about this issue. But I think currently um, our US position remains to be, well, we cannot, we cannot pick one over the other because these, these two countries are both presenting significant geostrategic threats and, and challenges to US national interests and to regional stability. So I think the ultimate answer is that while well, US will continue on both tracks, both in Europe and in Asia, and US will continue will proceed with um, security agreements such as AUKUS and also welcome allies and partners to play and to increase their role in the, uh, in the, regional, in, in the regional alliance partnerships and the regional security. Focusing on- And I also have to, just to add on that, I'm sorry. Please. Just no, to please. add on that, I think the reaction from Asian countries and from European countries also to a very large extent um, originated from the Chinese action and the reaction to the, to the Ukraine crisis. Because had China stood out and stood out with a more justified and a more just position, acknowledging the invasion as an invasion, I think at least countries in the region will feel, well, maybe China is a trustworthy leader after all. Maybe we can trust China to stand the, the correct position and to defend the international justice as it, is, as it is required. But I think in this case, the Chinese biased position really has had a major impact over how regional countries see China and see the future of their interaction with China. And based on that perception, regional countries are making their decisions regarding the regional security framework. You just mentioned perceptions of some of the regional partners. Let's turn to perceptions of the United States and talk specifically about US-China relations. Do you think that Russia recognizes the potential consequences to the bilateral relationship posed by its continued support for Putin? Or do the possible benefits to a strategic Sino-Russian alliance outweigh such consequences? So whether China understands the consequences, right? Yeah. I think so far, China is still trying to figure out what the consequences are. Because so far, there are diplomatic questions, there are political uh, accusations, but in coming to the specific, like, tangible costs, I think it's still regarded as quite minimal from the, from the Chinese perspective. And we, we know that the US is not pleased with the Chinese inaction in this case, that China did not try to persuade Russia uh, from 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 this uh, from this full scale invasion into into Ukraine, um, and after the invasion happened, the, the Chinese position is uh, is is not helpful. It's not constructive from from a U.S. perspective at all. So I think all those are going to trickle down to specific impact over U.S.-China relations. But the Chinese default position is that well, U.S.-China relations is already bad to begin with. So no matter what we do or do not do on Russia this relationship is not going to improve. And 
I, I, I remember you one of the dialogues with, uh, with the Chinese experts, the Chinese comment is, so we helped the United States to deal with Russia and then what will be next, right? Then what will be the next target of the United States? So I think the Chinese approach this question with a very, uh, with a very direct mentality that how is this going to affect US-China relations or how is this going to help China? That if there, as in, if there is a argument here in the US that, well, we need to align with China in order to manage Russia as a bad, as a bad actor, I think there is going to have some corners in, in, in China that will be very welcoming to that idea. Not that it will necessarily become China's national policy and they will embrace it in, immediately. But I think the current thinking in China is that, well, helping US is not gonna help us, but helping Russia in the long run will help us. So that is why we're helping Russia. Not the most positive note to end on, but uh, before we wrap things up, because we're at time, I just wanna give you the floor um, in case you have anything else you'd like to add. Um, one thing that I would like to add is that China and Russia have a very complicated relationship. They do have a shared spread perception of, about the United States. We also know that the top leaders, especially the Chinese top leader, has a strong Russia complex that affects, colors his judgment about Russia, make him see Russia in the most, in a more benevolent, in a more benevolent light. But eventually, when you look at China and Russia, they do not want the same thing. China wants what? China wants Belt and Road Initiative. China wants a international system that is mostly hierarchical, that China is on the top. But China does not use, for example, China prefers coercion rather than military actions directly because, um, well, using Sun Tzu's teaching, winning without fighting is the ultimate art of war, right? And a military campaign to occupy territory in the Chinese military philosophy is the worst of the worst strategy. So you do not want that. So from that perspective, Russia is not going to be pleased to live in a hierarchical world where China is an over-dominant superpower. And in that hierarchy, Russia is not China's peer. So if you look at this from the angle of the end game that China and Russia are pursuing, they do not want the same thing. This is why that people argue that the relationship between China and Russia is a marriage of convenience, but it's not necessarily going to be flimsy because they do have a shared threat perception. So, but looking in down, down the road from their desired endgame to their desired role in the international system, and also to their approaches to the international system, China and Russia are fundamentally different powers. So from that perspective, I think uh, people do have questions about the sustainability and the, the health of the Central Russia alignment in the long run. Although in the short run, it seems that China is, is so concerned about its strategic competition with the United States, and it has decided to pick Russia, Russia's side, at least in this current Ukraine crisis. Thanks so much, Yoon, for once again sharing your expertise and analysis with us today. And many thanks to my NCOSER colleagues for helping to craft the interview topics and questions. We hope you found this interview interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National Committee programming. Thanks again and take care. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.